Um, hide and seek is something probably all of us have played at one time or another. Um, maybe it's going to be for some students, it's going to be hide and seek tomorrow as they have to go back to school after spring break. Uh, but hide and seek is something that's, you know, that has two sections and kind of things that we want to think about today. We always think about hide and seek, but it also could be called seek and wait. Um, because as you're hiding there, you're waiting. Will I get discovered? Is this the right time to go back to base and all of those things? And so that's really what we're going to look at today in these two chapters. We're going to look at seeking and waiting. There's elements of both of these. And I think these are both important elements of the Christian life that there's times and, and situations that we need to be seeking the Lord. Right? And there's also times that even as we're seeking the Lord, we're also waiting on him to act. And it seems oftentimes from our perspective that we're seeking him and like, I'm not finding him or we're waiting on him. And like, how long am I going to have to wait? And so sometimes we can think that our, um, you know, interaction with the Lord is somehow unique, that we're the only ones who have kind of gone through these things. But then we come to the Psalms and we realize, OK, this is really how it goes. This is how it is for a believer living in a fallen world. And so we're going to look at seeking and waiting today in Psalms 24 and 25. So let's jump into Psalm 24. So it's a Psalm of David we see there. And there is debate, like with many of these Psalms, on exactly kind of what was going on. What were the circumstances that were taking place when David wrote these different Psalms? And one of the things that commentators believe Psalm 24 may be related to is that it may be related to when he brought the ark into Jerusalem to put it there in the tabernacle. And, and so since it's been a long time since we've covered that, let's actually turn there for just a moment by way of introduction. Let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6. So turn left a little bit to 2 Samuel chapter 6. It may be a story that some of you are familiar with, but we're going to be reminded of kind of some things and lessons that happened um, as David sought to bring the ark back into Jerusalem. Now, if you'll remember in 1 Samuel, what happened is um, Eli had two sons that were priests and they weren't good guys, Hophni and Phinehas. And um, what they did is they decided, well, let's take the ark into battle against the, the Philistines because the ark is going to win the battle for us. So they used the ark as kind of a talisman. The Israelites were defeated and then the ark was taken by the Philistines. But then the Philistines didn't like the ark too much because what happened is it damaged their false god Dagon and then it caused diseases in the land. So eventually they sent it back. They didn't want it anymore. And so... David is in a situation now as king that he wants to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But unfortunately, he goes about it in the beginning in the wrong way. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to move quickly through this chapter. says, again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. Now, here's a problem. As before we move into verse three, you know, people often say, well, I don't really like to read all of the Bible. There's so much in there. Do I really need to know that? Do I really need to understand it? And you never know what part of the scripture is gonna be important for whatever you're dealing with. And so what we have here is David seemingly unfamiliar with instructions about how to move the ark. There's clear instructions in the law of Moses on how the ark was to be moved and the ark was to be carried. It was to be carried by four of the Levites, but they didn't do that. Notice verse three. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. You know where they got the idea to put it on a cart? From the Philistines. The Philistines were the ones who had sent the, the ark back on a cart. And so David's like, well, let's just use a cart. So we have to be careful of kind of getting our ideas about how to serve God from unbelievers. And that's exactly what we have here. Now, they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, went to Ahio, went before the ark. And David and the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on cisterns, and on cymbals. So having a grand time, they're worshiping the Lord, lots of instruments involved. Don't let anyone ever tell you that you can't serve the Lord or worship the Lord with instruments. Verse six, and they came to Nacon's 
threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand on the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his, t- for his error, and he died there by the he died there by the ark of God. Now, it's interesting. This is one of the ones where people have a, a big time problem with God. I can't believe God killed this guy for touching the ark. Well, he wasn't supposed to touch the ark. And this, it was touching the ark because they chose the wrong way to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And then people say, well, what would happen? And did God want him to, to let it fall? Or, and it, I, I don't know all that. Right? I don't know all of those things or what could have happened or what should have happened or what would have happened. What I do know is they weren't supposed to bring the ark on a cart. They were supposed to carry it. And because they did things poorly, then what happens oftentimes when we make bad decisions, and it compounds. And that's what we have here. So David, understandably, is upset about this. It says David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of God come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Now, I hope there's a DVD of this in heaven. (laughs) That, That David and the guys with the ark, and then... Hey, would you mind if we left the ark at your house? (laughs) And so they bring the ark of God into the house of Obed-Edom. And then notice verse 11. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of um, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So there's the ark under this covering. And so people are coming over to have coffee with Obed-Edom. And they're like, what's that in your living room? It's the ark. (laughs) It's the ark of the Lord is there, and the presence of it there is blessing Obed-Edom. Now, it's interesting. David doesn't want to miss out on this blessing. Verse 12, now it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord, now notice, no cart. They're carrying it now. Those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Okay, so they're doing it the right way. David wants to enjoy the blessing in Jerusalem that God you know, brings with his presence. And so now David, though he's not dressed as a king, he's, he's dressed kind of like in these just undergarments or even the garments of a servant and he's dancing before the Lord he's excited about the situation so David and all his house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet now the ark of the Lord came to the city of David Michal Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord and she despised him in her heart because she was Baptist and she didn't like dancing no I'm just kidding I'm just kidding that's not what it says So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So the people departed, everyone to his house. So it's his feasting and celebration because the ark has come back into Jerusalem. Then David returned to bless his household. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, went out to meet, him, uh, meet David and said, Now, here it is, as much as I like sarcasm. She's using sarcasm here and it's not a good time. She says, How glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of the servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. So we see kind of this mixed bag of things here where 
they want to bring the ark back and they don't do it poorly and a guy dies and then Obed-Edom is blessed and then David brings the ark in and there's joy and rejoicing and feasting. But there's an individual here, Michal, who she doesn't like how David worships the Lord and she's not about what's happening that day. And so there's a lot of things to learn, a lot of things to think about and consider from this chapter. But I wanted to kind of spend some time on it to give you some background to what may be the occasion of what we have in Psalm chapter 20. So with all this in mind, would you turn back now to Psalm 24, and we'll move into this uh, wonderful psalm. We see in verses 1 and 2, David begins, and he says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Okay, so David here, by way of reminder, he says, here's the deal. Everything belongs to the Lord. Every single thing belongs to the Lord. Everything that's physical, everything that's spiritual, everything material, immaterial. It it all belongs to the Lord. And and so he kind of points out some of these things. And and I love what he points out in verse 1. He says, the earth itself is the Lord's. Okay, so the earth is the Lord's, but also not only the earth itself but also the fullness thereof, everything that it produces, everything that comes from the world is the Lord's. And so even when people take different things and and they, you know, synthesize uh, different materials, they synthesize those materials out of things that they found on this earth. And therefore those things, whether they use it for good or for evil, they're the raw materials that belong to the Lord. And, And so no one has a right to do what they want with the Lord's stuff. So anytime someone, whether it's a believer or unbeliever, takes that which belongs to the Lord and uses it in an ungodly way, they are taking something from the Lord and misusing it. It all belongs to him, every single thing. And then not only does the earth belong to the Lord and everything that comes out of it, what's produced from the earth, notice also he says there in verse one, he says the world, so again, that's the earth again, the world, and those who dwell therein. Therefore, every single person belongs to the Lord. Every single person is owned by the Lord. And so everything belongs to the Lord. Now, why? Why is it like this? Why here in verses one and two? And, you know, why does he own everything? Because he made it all. He made absolutely everything by by just speaking. (laughs) The Lord said, let there be light, and there was light. And the Lord said, hey, let there be planets and stars and whales and people and all of these things, and they were. And so I want to remind you a couple of verses of this that speaks specifically of Jesus Christ as the one whom everything was created through. John chapter 1, verse 3, John writes, all things were made through him, that's Jesus, and without him nothing was made that was made. So everything that was made, all the raw materials, all the people, all the plants, all the animals, everything was made through Jesus. And then Paul goes further in Colossians 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things consist. What he's saying is that, is that everything was made by him. Material, immaterial, physical, non-physical, angels and demons. Now we know that the demons were not originally built as demons. They were angels who fell, but even now they still belong to the Lord. They're part of his creation, and even though they war against us, God is actually still using even that for his purposes. Every single thing belongs to the Lord. And so there's a lesson here for us, and it's a lesson that's so hard to learn, especially as Americans. Especially as Americans. It's like, no, it's, it's my pursuit you know, of the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's my stuff and my rights and my this. And the Lord would just say, let me stop you right there. You own nothing in a primary sense. You and I own nothing in a primary sense. We only own things in a secondary sense, right? 
So we own a car, right? And we have the proof of that because of that payment <laughs> that we make on the car. We, we own that car, but God says, yeah, you own it, but in a secondary sense. In the primary sense, it belongs to me because the money that you're using to pay for it and the ability that you have to work and all of those things come from me. And so what happens when you and I forget that, then we get sideways. And if you're anything like me, you make yourself a God with a little g. It's my stuff and my things and my ways of doing stuff and my, 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 my. And the Lord says, let me just take all that off your shoulders. You don't own anything. It doesn't belong to you. Your life is not your own, Paul says. You've been bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and spirit, which both belong to him. And so God is the creator, and it all starts with this truth. It's not a mistake that the first chapter in your Bible is the creation story. That, that It's the, the first week of creation. Because if you get this wrong, if any person on planet Earth gets this wrong, if they don't start with God as their creator, there's no way they can come to a correct conclusion. We've all done math, and maybe we stopped at different levels of doing math, but we've all done math, and we've all done this. We started working a problem, and we're on the wrong path, and the only way to do is to go back to where you went wrong and, and then start over from there. You can't just be at a wrong place and then keep going in a wrong place and expect it to be okay. But that's what we have on planet Earth. We have most of the earth rejecting God as creator and yet somehow just saying, well, let's just keep on going and we can fix this. We can just kind of change the structure. I'll dress my life up. I'll stop cussing as much. I'll stop doing this. No, 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 no. It has to go back to God is the creator. And once you go back and say, okay, God's the creator. He owns everything. It all belongs to him. Now you can start working the math problem correctly. But until that happens, there's no way to fix it. I've seen how the story ends. Man can't fix it. If anyone refuses to acknowledge God as their creator, refuses to acknowledge it, he owns everything. There's no fixing it. No political party, no economic system, no, no this, that, or the other education, or whatever the case may be, can fix it. A submission to God as creator, as owner of all things, is the only fix. Then we can go on from there. All right, let's move on to verse three of Psalm 24. It says, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? And so really the question here, David is asking and really is a, you know, bringing the ark there to the tabernacle if, if the commentators are correct. And he's asking, who can approach the Lord? This is the question David's asking. This is the question of human history. Who can go see God? But you know what's interesting is we've switched that. I've switched that. The usual question is, what can I do to make myself happy? How can I, how can I be happy? How can I be comfortable? How, how can life go the way I want it to go? But David says, that's not the question. The question is, how can I get to the Lord? How can I see the Lord? How can I be with the Lord? And so to put it another way, in verse 3, David is asking, who can take his place as a worshiper? Who can make a case for his right to be there. As we sang and as we went through, you know, Revelation chapter five there, this idea, this truth, this future event where people are gonna be in the presence of the Lord worshiping him. David is really kind of asking that question. Who can do that? Who can go see the Lord? Who can be with him? Who can worship him? And then he's gonna answer in verse four. He says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart. What is this? This is outward cleanliness and inward cleanliness. Now, um, I saw there was a church that I saw that actually had this verse on the soap dispenser in their bathroom. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of a misapplication of scripture because he's not talking about really necessarily dirt or germs on your hands. He's talking about what you use your hands for, right? Like we talk about people who may be physically clean, but we say, well, they have blood on their hands. 
And so it's this idea, am I conducting my life in such a way that there's an outward and inward cleanliness in how I, you know, the, the motivations of my heart, the actions that I take out. And so he's also saying here, he's not to be an idol worshiper nor a liar. And so we look at all of this and then I look at kind of how I've conducted my life and I look at verse four and say, well, I'm disqualified. I, I'm not a person that can say, oh, look at me. I have clean hands and a pure heart. Oh, I've never lifted my, my soul up to an idol. I've never sworn deceitfully. I failed on all of those counts. And, and so what do I do with that? Well, I have to understand the fullness of Scripture, that if you and I are believers in Jesus Christ, then we do fulfill these requirements. And the reason we fulfill these requirements is because we are perfectly righteous in him. We're perfectly righteous in Jesus Christ. And so I, I was thinking, well, what verses can I use? All that kind of stuff. And here's, here's what I'd say. Read the book of Romans. <laughs> if you're confused, if you need a reminder of your righteousness and how you can be righteous, how you can be a person who God views as clean hands and pure heart and not lift up your soul to an idol nor swore deceitfully, you've got to read the book of Romans and realize that your righteousness is through Jesus Christ, that your faith in him, he has accounted your faith as righteousness. Your, the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to you. But I do want to turn to, to one place that kind of ties into this. So would you turn to the book of Hebrews for just a moment? So turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I'll leave you to read Romans on your own. Hebrews 4, I'm going to look at verses 14 through 16. This ties in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. So we kind of look at ourselves, well, who can go before the Lord? Who can worship before him? And the author to the Hebrews tells us, well, every single believer in Jesus Christ can because Jesus has opened the way. Hebrews 4, starting verse 14 says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with, with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what is he saying there? He's saying that we have this high priest who's opened the door to heaven, made a way for us to go, and then, but he he's, can sympathize with us because he's been tempted. But notice, he's been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What is the clear indication, the clear implication, is that you and I are sinners. Is making a distinction. So he's not saying you have to be sinless so you can go before the God. No, he says in Christ you are sinless. In Christ all your sins have been forgiven. So it's in Christ you can go. So Jesus isn't expecting us, man, if they could just clean up their act and get it right, finally they're going to get to see me. No, he's like, you guys can't get your act right. You can't fix this on your own. That's why I had to come and do it for you. You know, it's the old saying, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Jesus did. He needed it done right, and so he came into himself. And so notice us, verse 16, let us, believers, therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You and I can come before the Lord. We can come boldly to find grace and help and mercy and all of these things. Why? Because Jesus. We come in Jesus' name. We come in Jesus's sacrifice. We come in his finished work. And so this beautiful picture of who can come before, you know, the Lord in his, his holy temple, the person who has trusted in Jesus Christ, because in Jesus Christ, they have those clean hands and that pure heart. All right, let's turn back now to Psalm 24. Continue on to verse 5. It says, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And so the, this person here, right, who's going before the Lord, who has his clean hands and this pure heart, then he's going to receive that blessing from the Lord. And so when we place our faith in the Lord, when we trust in the Lord, then what the Lord gives to us is he gives us blessing, right? And he gives us this righteousness. This righteousness really speaks of right standing. That's what it means. Righteousness is right standing with God. We've all been in a situation where we've been in wrong standing. We've all taken tests and we see the tests given back to us and there's an awful lot of red ink on it. 
It wasn't, we weren't righteous. Our answers weren't righteous. We didn't have a right standing. We did so many things wrong. But for you and I, as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, the beautiful results are blessing and right standing. I love how this was portrayed back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 15, verse 6. God made a promise to Abraham, and then we're told Abraham believed in the Lord, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. How can we become righteous? By believing God. By believing what he said. Believing in the finished work of Jesus Christ, and that righteousness is accounted to us. Continuing on now to verse 6, he says, This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. This is Jacob. I like this. Now, you know, sometimes we get a little fuzzy, you know, in, in our genealogies. And it's interesting that um, if we don't spend a lot of time kind of come back to the scripture, we kind of forget who's where. But, you know, it was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then way down the line, now we're at David. So what in the world is David saying? Because Jacob's been dead for a long time. So what does he mean, this is Jacob? He means true Jacob, real Israel, the people of the faith. In other words, when he says, this is Jacob, he's saying, this is the the true people of God, the generation of those who seek him, who seek his face. Here's the key. The true people of God seek God. How can you know if a person is, 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 is a true believer, they seek God? It's not necessarily the church they go to. It's not necessarily the armbands they wear or the t-shirts or the, the songs they listen to. It's are they seeking God? That's the true indication of a believer. They want to see his face. Notice those who seek him who seek your face. When you were playing hide and seek and you were the seeker, everybody knew that. Everybody saw. Everybody was hiding from you. For us as believers, it should be clear to those around us that we're the seeker. It should be clear to those around us that we're looking for God, that we want to see his face, that we have a divine discontentment with this world and its systems because it's not God. What's going to happen, and kind of I have a hard time tempering this, that the, the more that you get to know God, the more you want heaven. And then we can use that poorly, though, and say, well, this, this life just sucks because <laughs> I'm not in heaven. And so there's that temporary. Paul you knew that if you've read Philippians, right? He says, man, to depart in Christ, is, to be with Christ is far better. But I've got work to do here. And so this is the key. And so we find ourselves in a place of not seeking God. Then what's happened is just this world has has numbed us, right? The things of this world have numbed us, distracted us, kind of um, numbed our, our, our taste for God. Many people who, you know, have gotten COVID and they lost either temporarily or who knows for how long, you know, the sense of taste and sense of smell. You know, what happens is when that happens, you, you don't have those sensations that you used to have. And so that's what can happen in this world. It can numb us to wanting to seek after God. It can dull our senses, And so these people that we're talking about here in verse six, these people seek the face of God, please hear me, for relationship, not for recreation. They seek the face of God for relationship, not for recreation. There's a lot of people, and I've fallen into this trap myself, who seek God because of how it makes you feel. And it's exciting, or, you know, they kind of go seek for signs and wonders, or these, all these kind of things, you know, these spiritual shivers that they can have. But ultimately, the seeking of God is for relationship, not for recreation, because you want to know him as a person. You want to have that relationship with him. And that's what Moses wanted. You know, Moses wanted to see the face of God. And it wasn't because Moses hadn't seen miracles, <laughs> Think about all that Moses saw. He saw the plagues and he performed different miracles and, and manna, you know, and, you know, there's fire, pillars of fire and all this kind of stuff. He saw all of that, but he wanted to have a relationship with God. He wanted God himself. And so that's the true desire behind heaven is really wanting to see God and to know him well. Now, we're going to go through these last uh, verses here of this chapter quickly, verses 7 through 10. And then this, perhaps, this was sung by David as they're coming, as they're bringing the the tabernacle there, uh, I'm sorry, the ark into the tabernacle. He says, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, 
and the king of glory shall come in. And then, so it's interesting. So verse seven is this calling out, you know, the God's coming in. And then it might have been that the people outside the tabernacle were instructed to ask a question. Who is this king of glory? Because see, this was something that happened in kings in ancient times. When a king would return to his city, oftentimes they would announce him. And then the people guarding the gate would say, well, who is this king? And then they would say who the king was, and then they would let him in. That's kind of a formal thing. So maybe this is something that was, David was, was doing as well. He said, who is this king of glory? Notice, the Lord is strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. So here's his answer. So, so please remind yourself, please, I need to remind myself that though it may seem like the Lord's not doing something. He's not doing enough. He's not getting things taken care of. He's not fixing situations. The Lord is strong and mighty. He's mighty in battle. When he decides it's time to take care of business, he's going to take care of business. That's who he is. And so then there's another question. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So it's pretty exciting to think about this and what that might have looked like in the pageantry of this and the excitement as the ark is brought back into Jerusalem. Now, it's also interesting to consider another way that we can apply this chapter because this is one of the Psalms that was always used in worship on the first day of the week. So on the first day of the week, okay, which is Sunday, then this was a, a psalm that was sung publicly. And so kind of, I think it was probably the idea of kind of ushering God into the new week and, and you know, that, that God's a part of this new week. But also remember what happened in Jerusalem the Sunday before Jesus died, and that was Palm Sunday. That was a triumphal entry. And so could it be that people were there in Jerusalem singing this psalm as it was their tradition as the king of glory came in? As the Lord Jesus came in riding the donkey. So it's really interesting to think about. And then also, one more place, could it be that the angels sang this song as Jesus ascended into heaven? Um, after he finished his work here on earth. So lots of exciting things to think about related to this psalm. All right, Psalm 25, uh, another psalm of David, and I have no idea on the occasion for this one. Not even a guess, so we'll just jump into it. Verse 1, to you, O Lord, I will lift up my soul. So the Lord, David is saying that the Lord is his only hope. I'm lifting up my soul only to you, no plan B. This is a picture of complete surrender, of complete submission, of waiting on the Lord. And, and so the application for us as we say, okay, I want that to be me. I want to lift up my soul to the Lord. How do I do it? Well, we lift up to this, our soul to the Lord in prayer, right? As we pray to the Lord, then we're lifting up our soul to him. Or as we sing worship songs, whether it's here in church or at home, we're lifting up our soul to the Lord. And when we faithfully obey what he says for us to obey, even though it doesn't feel good, even though we're like, I, I just don't know where this is going to take me, that's lifting up our soul to the Lord. So what's so cool about this is we can actually lift up our soul to the Lord continually. And everything that we do can be an, an action of lifting up our soul to him. Verse 2, he says, oh my God, I trust in you. Let me not be ashamed. Let not my enemies triumph over me. Uh, this not be ashamed could be translated reap shame. You know, let me not reap shame. Let me not, you know, as I'm, I'm a kind of sowing in my life, let not the crop be shame. Let me not be disappointed in my hope. And, and so David wanted that hope that what he was doing, that his life mattered, that it was going somewhere. And so David needed this help in the midst of his enemies. And that's a common thing for us. As we look around us and as we see, just it seems like, man, things are getting worse and worse and all of that kind of stuff. As the scriptures told us it was going to, then we say, Lord, I need help. I need help. I, I want it to be that I'm going to live a life that I'm not going to be ashamed in the ultimate end. Verse three, he says, indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. 
Let those be ashamed who do treacherously and without cause. So we talked about the seeking, and now here we see the waiting here in verse 3. Those who wait on you, let those who wait on you not be ashamed. Now what's interesting, in the original Hebrew, commentators who understand it more than I do, they say verse 3 is actually an affirmation of confidence. Okay, in other words, David is not saying this, Lord, I really just hope if maybe somehow believers won't be ashamed. It's actually David is confident that believers won't be ashamed. It's an affirmation of confidence that, that, hey, the one who waits on you, the one who faithfully trusts in you, the one who serves you, they're not going to be ashamed. They're not going to be disappointed. Here's the deal with kind of how the light, this world goes and, and the way Satan and the demonic work and this world system as believers, we can often be embarrassed. We can be ashamed, right? We can be disappointed in kind of how things go temporarily. But then what does Paul tells us? He says, don't set your mind on things below, but on things above. Because the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are permanent. Paul says, hey, guys, as believers, we're the offscouring of the earth. You know what the offscouring is? It's when you cook something and you just throw it in the sink, you know, the, the pot, and you don't clean it for a few days. <laughs> and it makes a nice little uh, experiment in there. And then, you know, there's some moisture kind of gets involved and it's just nasty. Paul says that's what we are as believers. That's how the world treats us. That off scouring, that nastiness, that leftover in the pan. But that's not who we're going to always be. And so, so there's, there's a, kind of a, a situation where there's going to be you know, difficulty. We're going to be ashamed and disappointed often in this life, but not permanently, not forever. And so David says, hey, let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. Interestingly enough, those who deal treacherously, treacherously without cause often have it the best here in this life. Have a really good time of it. You have a lot of riches and power and ability in this life, but the day's coming where they're going to be ashamed, not temporarily, but permanently. Verses four and five, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. On you, I wait all the day. Uh, let me just say with 100% certainty, God will answer this prayer. If you make verses four and five a prayer, God will answer this request. But be warned, those paths are going to be challenging. Jesus says it's a, it's a difficult way. It, that, that Paul says, you know, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of heaven. And so, but this is a wonderful prayer here. And I think verses four and five tie exactly to Proverbs chapter three, verses five and six where we read, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So God wants to answer this. Anyone who says, Lord, show me your ways, teach me your paths, lead me in your truth. You're my God. Take me where you want. He's going to take you. But just understand, sometimes it's going to be scary. And sometimes it's going to be hard. But I, I want to pay special attention to the last part of verse 5 when he says, on you I wait all the day. I love that. It's just this idea of serving God all day, every day. It's waiting on him every moment. It's a practice and presence of God. It's, it's any time is a good time to serve the Lord. And so it's really important because somewhere along the way, there became this sacred secular divide that these th things are sacred and these things are secular. That I'll go to church on Sunday, but I'll be a crook at business the rest of the week. And there's, there's no such thing as that. You know, as, as C.S. Lewis says in, in, in The Great Divorce, there are no private conversations. There, there, there's, there's no sacred secular divide. For the believer, everything is to be sacred. For the believer, everything is done in God's presence. Everything is done for him. We can wait on him all the day. Verse six, remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindness, for they are from of old. So I love this. David, David says, please remember this. What I want you to remember, Lord, I want you to remember your tender mercies. In the Hebrew, it actually means compassionate compassions. I want you to remember your compassionate compassions. I want you to remember your loving kindnesses. It's plural because there's so many of them. God's loving kindnesses are so many that it has to be plural. And then it says they're from old. And that really means from eternity. So this is what David is asking God to remember. Remember your compassionate 
compassions. Remember your many loving kindnesses. Remember that they're from always. And then I love in verse seven, he's asking the Lord not to remember some things. (laughs) And then he says, do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. I love that. So Lord, here's the things I want you to remember. Now here's the things I'm asking you not to remember. And it's beautiful because the Lord answers that too. You know, the the Lord, you know, casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. That, you know, as one person says that he's he's cast our sins into the sea of forgetfulness and then posted a sign that says no fishing. And and so I I love that idea. And so what we have here in verse seven is the end of verse seven when he's like remembering, remember me according to your mercy. When God remembers his mercy, he forgets our sins. When God remembers his mercy, he forgets our sins. And so that's beautiful. It's all about the Lord, right? It's the Lord's mercy and the Lord's goodness here. Verse eight, he says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. And isn't that so interesting? Because we think, well, God's good and upright. So therefore, he doesn't want anything to do with sinners. No, no. It says, because he's good and upright, therefore he teaches sinners in the way. Because he's good and upright, he's willing to teach sinners. Now, the question for us as as sinners, are we willing to learn? Are we willing to learn? I had the unfortunate occasion of grading some thesis papers yesterday. And Brandy witnessed all the, you know, the stages of grief I went through. As I graded my students' thesis papers, because things I've been telling them over and over again to change, to do differently, they haven't changed. But then as I looked at those, I could say, well, how often is that with me and the Lord? The Lord says, hey, let's change. Let's do this thing different. Let's go in a different direction. And to keep doing the same old thing. The good news, though, is that if you are a sinner who wants to learn his ways, he is willing to teach you. Even if every day up to this point... You've done things in such a way that you haven't listened, you haven't listened, you haven't listened. The Lord says, still here. I'm ready to teach you if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to learn. Verse nine, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. So here again, here's another key to being taught is humility. Humility is essential to learning because humility says, I don't know it all. I don't understand it all. And I would argue those, those who know more realize how much they don't know. <laughs> and so actually, the more that you learn, instead of it puffing you up, it should actually bring humility. Because you're like, I've just scratched the surface of these things. So humility is a key to receiving God's guidance and his teaching. As we're told in the scriptures that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth to such as keep his covenant and his testimonies. And so this is a really hard one here because in, the, in verse 10, it says all the paths of the Lord. So what it's saying is for the, the obedient person, all the paths of the obedience unswervingly lead to mercy and truth, even though they often don't feel like it. You know, it, it may be that you've been out hiking before and you were on this trail and it was clearly marked trail and you knew you're on the right trail, but you're convinced they, it's wrong. <laughs> this can't be right. I cannot be like this. There's no way this is going to lead me to the end. And then, it, but if you followed that trail all the way, it's like, oh, it did lead me to the end. All along the way, I couldn't see how it was going to get me there, but here I am. And that's what the Lord is saying to us. You see, as we look at verse 10, if we have our questions about it, if we wonder about David's wisdom here, then what we can make a little note next to verse 10, and that's Romans 8, 28. Romans 8, 28 is our guarantee of this truth that God is working all things together for the good, for those who love him, for those who are the called according to his purpose. So we have that all there. That, that, that all means all, that's all all means. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord... Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. So David is saying, my sin is great, okay? But your, your mercies are greater still because of your name, because of your goodness, because of who you are. So this is a reminder here. This is a really important verse 11. Notice David isn't saying, Lord, help me fix me. I, I, I need to take care of this. 
David is saying, my sins are great. My sins are over my head. So I need your pardon. Here's the situation. Self-focus always leads to despair. The more that we focus on ourselves, the more despair we will feel. But a God focus leads to hope. Because God knows what he's doing. God has the resources. God has the ability. God's character is perfect. But if we look at ourselves, we realize we're none of those things. And so the focus needs to turn away from ourselves onto him. Realize that he can forgive us because of his goodness, because of who he is. Verse 12, who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in all the way he chooses. Okay, so here's more of this, right? This teaching that if you fear the Lord, he'll teach you. But I want you to notice here in verse 12, in the way he chooses. That's where it gets sticky. You know, so spiritually speaking, you've chosen to major in fearing the Lord. (laughs) You've chosen your major. You want a degree in fearing the Lord. Here's the problems. You don't get to choose the curriculum. You don't get to choose the courses you're going to take. He chooses the courses for you. And those courses may look very, very daunting. And say, well, I, I, I don't know. This. But the Lord's like, if you want to fear me, okay, if you want to walk in obedience to me, I'm going to have to set the course. I'm going to have to teach you in the way he chooses, in the way I choose. That's what the Lord would say. Now, it's important too. This is kind of really similar to this idea of running the race and we each have our own race. We each have our own course. We may look at someone else's curriculum in fearing the Lord and say, well, they have it too easy. Theirs is way easy. Their classes are a joke. But you know what? That's not between us and them. That's between us and them and the Lord. So for you and I, if we're going to take verse 12 to heart, we're going to say, all right, can I trust the Lord to choose the courses for me, knowing that he knows what he wants to get out of me, not only for this life, but for eternity. So I'm just going to stick it out. And if the classes are hard, you know, the good news is I know the teacher (laughs) and I know that he's going to get me through. Verse 13 He says, he himself shall dwell in prosperity and his descendants shall inherit the earth. And so this is the person who's who's taking courses according to what the Lord chooses. He's walking obedience. So he's going to have prosperity. Now, that can obviously mean physical prosperity. That can that can mean, um, you know, spiritual prosperity. The word could be actually translated goodness. So he's going to dwell in goodness, the goodness of the Lord. And then it says that he's going, his descendants shall inherit the earth. I tie that to where it says the meek shall inherit the earth there in the Beatitudes. So serving the Lord, what we see in verse 13 is always worth it, even when it doesn't feel like it. Verse 14, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him and he will show them his covenant. It's interesting in John's gospel, Jesus says, hey, no longer do I call you servants, but now I call you friends. And they begin to let him in on the thing. So that's what we have here. This word for secret in verse 14 could speak of friendship or intimacy. In other words, when you walk in the fear of the Lord, it leads to friendship with the Lord. And now the Lord can reveal truth to you. The, the Lord can reveal things to you. You've, have, you've seen this if you have kids that are adults now. Then as they got older, then there's a different relationship. And now you can talk to them on a different level because there's a friendship there. It's something new. And that's what happens between us and the Lord. That, that he wants to be friends with us. And he wants to share this truth with us. Verse 15. My eyes are ever forward. I'm sorry. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he shall pluck my feet out of the net. And so it's this idea of just keeping your eyes on the Lord and trust that he's going to bring the needed deliverance. Keep your eyes on him and he'll keep you free from the trap. Verse 16. And now um, this is as we, we move into verse 16 toward the end, then we see these difficulties that are, that are outward and both inward. Verse 16, he says, turn yourself to me and have mercy on me for I am desolate and afflicted. So David is a guy who knew the Lord well and had many great blessings and victories and all of these things, but he still felt lonely. That word desolate, he means he feels, I feel all alone. 
I feel like there's no one to help me. And, and so I need you to help me. I feel afflicted. So that's going to be something that believers at times feel. Verse 17, he says, the troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. That word distresses means pressures. And so he says, Lord, I feel pressured by these troubles that I, I feel difficulty and hardship because of all that's going on in my life. So again, that's something a believer is going to feel. Verse 18, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. So again, he says affliction and pain as a believer. He has his need for forgiveness there. Verse 19, consider my enemies for they are many and they hate me with cruel hatred. That cruel hatred there, it speaks of um, hatred that's violent. So David had violent enemies that come against him. So as a believer, that's not a guarantee that we're going to be spared from physical violence. That physical violence may come against us. That could happen to believers and often has happened throughout the history of the church. Verse 20, keep my soul and deliver me. Let me not be ashamed for I put my trust in you. And so Lord, hold on to me. You know, deliver me out of this situation. Ultimately deliver me to heaven to be with you and let me not be ashamed. Why? Because I've put my trust in you. That, that I've, I've placed my faith in you. Verse 21, let integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So we can look at this and whose integrity and whose uprightness, I prefer to view it as the integrity and uprightness of the Lord. Because if I'm personally, if I'm trusting in my daily integrity and my daily uprightness, I don't have much confidence in that. But I have absolute confidence in the Lord's integrity. The Lord's always going to do the right thing. The Lord is upright. And so he's the one who can preserve us. So I cannot preserve myself because to be quite honest with you, the more that I get to know me, the less confident I am in my ability to get it right. And so, but not so with the Lord. As we depend on the Lord completely, then we can trust in him. And I love that at the end of verse 21, he says, for I wait on you. Or sorry, I wait for you. For I wait for you. I'm waiting on you, Lord. Verse 22, he says, redeem Israel, O God, out of all their troubles. And so he's turned his focus kind of for his own relationship with the Lord. So he turns outward now and he says, Lord, by the way, we all need your help. <laughs> this whole nation needs your help. We're not doing fine. We need help. And so that would be a good prayer for us, for our nation. And so we'll stop there for today and prayerfully pick up in Psalm 26 next week. But just two things I want to leave you with. Number one is, are, are we seeking the Lord while he may be found? That's what it says in the scriptures. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And what I take from that, you know, is, is there's certain seasons and situations where if we ignore the Lord in that, it makes it kind of harder for us to seek after him. We kind of become numb to it. And so for us, let's, let's make it a practice of seeking the Lord of going after him, of pursuing him. And that's what happens in any good relationship. If you want to have a relationship with somebody, you seek after them. And then secondly, are we waiting on the Lord in the midst of the troubles of this life? David was a guy who God used in great ways, but he had his share of troubles. And we can even look at David and say, oh, well, David, so many of your troubles will self-inflicted. Well, how many of our troubles are self-inflicted? And so I don't think, even though David made a lot of mistakes, if, if our lives were written down in the pages of Scripture, people might be saying, oh, man, they make a lot of mistakes. And so for you and I to look and say, hey, I'm going to have trouble in this life, but am I willing to continually wait on him and his timing?